This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Welcome, everybody, to the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. It's Friday, so it's got to be TGIF DCT. It's our weekly gathering for all things decentralized clinical trials. We gather each Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, 9 to 10 Pacific, and we rotate different topics that matter to you and the audience, and we bring on different friends as co-hosts to help us with those topics. In past weeks, we've covered everything from diversity and participant experience to regulation and global considerations. And in the weeks ahead, we have some more great topics coming up um, next week on pediatrics and decentralized trials. How do they adapt for kids? But today I'm really excited because we're going to be covering a topic that um, comes up so frequently when we're thinking and talking about decentralized what are the measurements and the endpoints that we might need to progress and modernize to enable us to be more flexible in location? And as we're thinking about those measurements, what are the tools, devices, and technologies that we need in order to support capturing those measurements? Amir, any other thoughts as we get this week's topic going? No, I'm really looking forward to hearing from Andy and Samantha, as you know, um... Andy's company, which we'll talk about in a minute, is a uh, member of DTRA, and I'm, uh, and you know, I have a really interesting product that I'd love to dig into and kind of explore that. Well, let us wait no further. We have two fabulous um, co-hosts for this week's topic, both joining us from uh, Human First, uh, formerly known as Electra Labs. If you, but it's been a while, right, Andy? So I don't have to say that anymore. Uh, we have Samantha Reed and Andy Corvos. Um, Andy, take a moment and introduce yourself for folks in the uh, room that may not know you already. Oh, great. It's um, so nice to talk to everybody here. So today I am calling from Brooklyn, but normally I live in San Francisco. Um, I feel really lucky to get a chance to work on um, and build Human First. So we are supporting uh, folks that are using these sorts of decentralized uh, um, measures in, in decentralized clinical trials. And so before I did this work, I had previously served at the FDA in the digital health unit. So I was working with Fitbit, Apple, Samsung, um, and the other folks that were part of the pre-cert program. I'm very active in the security research community. I'm a software engineer by training. So I think, Amir, that's how we originally met was at DEF CON. Uh, that's correct. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Which was pretty great. So I came into a lot of this work through, um, more of the engineering and security side, since all of these different tools are connected to the internet. Um, previously did a stint, uh, more of my corporate side, so I worked in private equity and also at McKinsey. And uh, I have a long family history of working in healthcare. Both of my parents um, have worked in healthcare. They've actually both only had one job their whole lives. So my dad's a dentist and my mom's a nurse. And I am ethically bad with blood, so that's probably why I went into the engineering side of things. But um, yeah, this is a fun time, and I think um, I, I think of all the different types of problems that we get to work on in the course of our lives. Healthcare is one that, that really captivates my attention. There's so much, we'll talk a lot about the tools, but I think, uh, for me, the thing is, why do we use any of these tools? So thinking about healthcare at home, thinking about different ways that we can deal with neurological conditions. Um, and I think there's a lot that we can do to, to make life and, um, healthcare much more human first, which is where our name comes from. Andy, uh, I'm going to push you a little bit deeper into your background because it, it's interesting. You, you do, you're you're an engineer, but you didn't start that way. You, it's, if I remember, you you 
picked up that direction a little a little later in your journey? I think, well, I mean, I, I think it kind of depends when do you consider yourself to be an engineer. Uh, but let's do, uh, let's have Sam introduce ourselves. And then Sam and I have actually known each other very, very long time. Sam, I think it's coming on 15 years. So we can kind of, we can chat about all of that too. Oh, that's great. I didn't realize you yeah. go that far back. Hi, Sam. Yeah. Please Hi. introduce yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Um, yeah. So Andy and I have known each other for, for a long time. Um, I lead the solutions team at Human First. And so I have um, the pleasure of working with our, our customers every day. Um, Human First, we've, we've worked with 22 of the top 25 pharma companies and helping them think through how and when to use digital endpoints, digital biomarkers in, in clinical trials, and, and then picking the right fit for purpose sensor. So it's been an awesome experience to see sort of industry-wide how these measurements and these tools are being adopted. Um, and it was just really exciting also to see its scope that, uh, you know, this is, um, this isn't, it's not a one-off. It's, it's not, it's becoming more and more common um, to incorporate connected sensors, other digital health tools in clinical trials and clinical care. So excited to be here. So Sam, where did you and Andy cross paths on this journey? Why don't you give us the backstory there? <laughs> uh, we've got a, a, a little bit of a, a Duke mafia um, at Human First. So Andy and I um, both uh, both went to Duke University for undergrad in, in our wonderful town of Durham, North Carolina. So uh, that is where we get our start. And we've uh, sort of just bumped into each other along the way. I've been in um, really in healthcare for a better part of a decade, um, really focused on, on pharma and biotech and, and bringing new innovation to patients. So it's been awesome to reconnect with Andy as, as part of the human first team and, and get to work together in a different way. There is a little bit of a Duke mafia there because in it, and I know it still lives on, right? Because there are some interesting relationships that, your team has built up with Duke, uh, if I remember, over the last year, I'm sure more. And it'll be interesting in today's conversation to understand a little bit about the whys related to that. Yeah, we'd love to chat with you about the, um, so we partnered up with Duke to build out the center um, for, um, with DCRI around all this digital measures. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But Sam actually inspired me to do more, much more of this work because early in her career, um, after she had done some of the work in consulting, she just went right into some of the early stages of biotech and deep tech, which was far beyond anything I had done. I had kind of just been doing a lot of different strategy work and so really got a better sense from her around um, how, how different types of trials are designed, different types of protocols, and that, um, I, I mean, earlier, I didn't really know how any of these things had really come to market. And so she was somebody who really helped me learn that in the early days. Good to keep the people who are influencing and inspiring close to you. That's uh, that's great. So, Sam, you had mentioned you're just back from Scope, and you're you're seeing a lot of enthusiasm around these devices in studies. Um, I'm curious because one question that jumps to my mind is. Um, for what? Uh, are you seeing, is this a density of people with traditional things to measure that they're looking for new ways to measure heart rate, blood pressure, other physiologic measurements they might have typically been capturing, but want to capture in a smarter way? Or is it a pull towards innovative new digital measurements and the need for um, new devices to support that? Or is it a pretty even split? Where, where are you seeing the most momentum right now coming back from scope or your other engagements? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think it is a healthy mix of both. Um, I think with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, with the, the increasing consumerization of healthcare, um, there is a need and really a desire to, to measure some of those more traditional endpoints, uh, vital signs, blood pressure. Uh, in a setting that is more convenient to patients, that's more equitable, that uh, doesn't involve trekking to a, a clinical trial site. Um, so I do think that we're getting, we see a lot of momentum there in, in trying to increase access and, and um, in, you know, increase the diversity of our clinical trials. On the, on the other hand, I think there are some really, really awesome initiatives. Uh, we, we heard about a couple of them at Scope. Um, to really look for novel endpoints. And I think there are some therapeutic areas that really benefit from um, 
I think of uh, you know neurology um, and neurodegenerative diseases where there is a lot of really interesting work going on to to look at novel measurements um, to really measure cognitive decline and, and other other symptoms. So I do think it's it's a healthy mix of both. I think it's it obviously a lot. It's a longer path, I think, when you have a novel measurement, um, but it's important work to be done. So I'm, I'm excited that we're, we're seeing both of them because we get the quick wins, although nothing is too quick. Um, we, we get to see immediate benefit um, by taking some of those more traditional measures and bringing it to a, a more um, you know, comfortable setting for a patient while we're still pushing, pushing really the scientific frontier in other TAs that, that need new ways of measuring disease progression. For, for folks who like frameworks, there's, I have a couple ways people can think about it. Should we jump into that? Take it on. All right. So I, I think as you think about digital measures, and this is the broad category because there's different types. There's clinical outcome assessments. Maybe the measure is an endpoint. Maybe the measure is a diagnosis. Maybe the measure is a biomarker. We can talk about all of those as we get into here. But if you think about digital measures, there's effectively two things to think about. One is what, what is the measure? Like, is it blood pressure? Is it um, FEV1? Like, is it, uh, is it the way that somebody has slept? And then how is that measure calculated? So you might have many different ways of calculating, perhaps like even something like heart rate. There's many different ways that people might calculate something like that, or there's many ways to calculate sleep. So if you have an existing measure and um, you're just making it digital, like you're taking a thermometer and then you're digitizing like that temperature, you would need a lot less evidence than if maybe you have a new measurement, uh, a novel measurement that hasn't really been used before. And so <clears throat> part of one of the challenges here is I think people kind of uh, will talk about digital measures in just this broad category of like, oh, we've like connected something to the internet and it's digital, um, or we're just collecting something at home and as you know, like people have been using pedometers for a long period of time, and that can be used at home, and that those might not be digital either. So as you think about the burden of evidence, one is like, is this measure broadly something that has been used in this clinical form? And then are we just taking effectively technical risk to collect this measurement in a new way? Or are you taking both technical and clinical risk um, to learn something new? And risk doesn't have to be a bad thing. I think there's a ton of opportunities. And um, I know Amir and Craig have been pushing a lot around, um, have been really thinking about how to use novel measures because that can really transform the way a clinical trial is done. And so generally, I think where I'm seeing a lot of this is we all know that the pandemic's not going home. And I personally don't believe in fully decentralized trials. Like you're not going to do a CT scan or an MRI at home anytime soon. So we're going to have to have some sort of hybrid trial. So if it really helps the population out a lot to take blood pressure at home or vital signs at home, those I think are happening more just as a location shift. Um, but I think where the, the measures start getting really powerful is if you're starting to measure something that people have never done before. So I really love the Duchenne's muscular dystrophy example that uh, the clinical trial transformation team talks a lot about. So for example, right now with Duchenne's, um, the gold standard is a six minute walk test. And so uh, when you look at the population of Duchenne's, about 70% of the people who have Duchenne's are in a wheelchair. So by definition, with that endpoint, 70% of the population can't even participate in the clinical trial because they can't take a six-minute walk. So clinical, so City, the Clinical Trial Transformation Initiative, which is an FDA-Duke partnership, along with a number of folks who are also in this room, looked at it and said, okay, can we have another type of performance outcome using a sensor? And they looked at upper arm mobility. And so I think that's a really powerful type of measure because it completely transforms who gets included and excluded from a clinical trial. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to just flip some of the trials to home. Obviously, there's more operational considerations that we can talk through, but I think that's going to be really important in the pandemic so you don't necessarily have your population have undue risk um, maybe coming into the clinic. But then I think there's a lot of opportunity and we can talk about how that gets through the agency around completely transforming a trial that you're able to measure something in a new form. I do want to just back up one click that I am totally with you around fully decentralized versus hybrid in terms of where the, the momentum is today. And to me, a lot of that is because people actually like going to a site when they're able to, and uh, nobody should be denied that if that's important to them. Um, but 
uh, tools like imaging, I, I don't think um, many today are hoping to, to drive the CAT scan to the patient's house, but at the very least, let them go to a local place to get the CAT scan and spare them the, uh, the burden of traveling to a big research site to get it done. But um, I was going to ask one question on my mind, but Amir, I, I see you jumped in. I want to make sure I'm not monopolizing Andy and Sam here. Oh, no, not at all. I was just going to actually say that I think the examples both uh, Samantha and Andy gave were great. So in terms of neurodegeneration, uh, we could easily have 10 sessions and I'll bring on some specialist uh, experts who would rant to you about how bad our cognitive measures are, how burdensome they are, and frankly, may not even be the right measures. And same thing with the examples with that six-minute walk. So I think I really like those examples because they're really showing how it's not just digitizing, you know, the lead standards we've had before, but really pushing forward and really understanding patients better with more appropriate patient-centric outcomes. So I really love those two examples. I'd, Amir, I'd actually love to riff off of that because Sam has a much bigger history than she was able to share in her intro, but she has a secret big knowledge around um, cognition measures. So maybe Sam, if you don't hate me for <laughs> putting you up for this, I think you and Amir could jam out on some of those and have and, and share a, a couple more examples there about how you've been thinking about that and maybe why you have that background. Yeah, yeah. So I um, I think Andy and I both have a, um, a soft spot for, for neurology, neurotech. Um, and before I joined Human First, I was working at Biogen um, on the Alzheimer's team. So I do think there's there are just like huge, huge opportunities there for taking you know, the pen and paper cognitive exams that, that we rely on today and digitizing them, and, but also improving them and looking at um, you know, different features like speech uh, and language and, and trying to see if, if some of those more novel measures are gonna be a good measure of decline. So I, that's one space that I can geek out on uh, forever. <laughs> There's always some, some cool new tech um, coming out in, in that space. So I'd love to keep going down this thread. Um, in thinking about, I'm a study team operator. I'm starting to consider either one of the options in the framework that was, uh, uh, any one of the options in the frameworks that we've been describing. Maybe it's uh, an existing measure that I'd like to uh, capture with higher frequency in a way that is more accessible for for patients. Perhaps I'll have um, a more reliable measure if I'm able to digitize how I'm capturing that. Or maybe I am thinking about the gaps in my therapeutic area and wanting to participate in the modernization of how we're measuring for many of the same reasons. What's the first step for me? Is there is there a, a, a well-articulated pathway for me that I should be thinking about? Andy, Sam, either of you um, want to jump on that? Sure. I think w when we have folks, I think pretty quickly when um, somebody's kicking off a set of research, they kind of know if they're like in the exploratory phase of like, hey, this sounds kind of interesting. Uh, this might be new or they're like, hey, this measure is like tried and true. I just need to figure out a good digital version of it. So um, and both Amir and Craig, I, I believe, also got involved in this pretty early. There's a, a group called the Digital Medicine Society who has been working on something called the Playbook, which is this big um, common effort, which I think now 29 different organizations have gotten involved in. Uh, thank you, Craig, for teeing me up for this one. I'm assuming this is where you're going. And so often people are thinking about what is the measure that matters before they get, you hope, into the technology that would collect that measure. So thinking about first the meaningful aspect of health, like is it that I can go walk upstairs carrying my groceries, that I can lift my grandkid, and then thinking about from that to a concept of interest. So maybe it's like walking or lifting or moving or some sort of activity, and then to the measure, which is time bound um, and has like units of time and then potentially to the endpoint, which is off, you know, a change between two of the measures that have time-bound nature. So at least with our partners that we work with and collaborators at Human First, if the measure has already been pretty well known, um, people often start with a lit review. And so they'll go through and look at the peer review papers, uh, clinicaltrials.gov, um, uh, different types of studies that have happened. And one thing that's super interesting about this is I think everyone here knows peer review takes forever. And so there's been really a lot of interesting work uh, coming out of 
academic centers and even in like related centers where people are posting uh, preprints um, and maybe just their data sets and they're really allowing people to jam on things even before the full peer review process goes through. Um, and then eventually things do end up coming through, but it, it accelerates the process there. As people think about brand new measures, um, there often is a peer review you know, and, and lit review process that people do. But the other thing that's been really interesting is some people start pulling ideas from related areas. So if someone says, okay, I'm really curious about sleep, but like the way somebody sleeps, if they have Parkinson's could be different from MS, which could be different from Huntington's. And what do I even mean by sleep? Is it wake after sleep onset, sleep efficiency, sleep latency, number of times I woke up in the middle of the night, you know, there can be 30, 50 different ways of measuring sleep. And so people do, um, and some of our teammates, and we've, we've ingested at Human First thousands of peer review papers and clinicaltrials.gov data, and they'll flip it on their head to say, okay, how are people right now thinking about measuring sleep in each of these areas? And then can I pull that data and start testing out new ideas? And if you're in a brand new area that hasn't really been tested yet, that's when you might work with somebody like Duke or some of these different validation centers and start thinking through the whole V3 process around how do I know that this measure is verified, analytically validated, and clinically validated, and then start running those sorts of experiments so that you can build the evidence base for um, testing your ideas around that measurement. So a network out there of partners like Duke um, that can help in terms of generating evidence if it doesn't exist, and then data resources like the one you've been building to help me in terms of navigating the data around existing devices when it's available. What type of data is important for me? What are, what are you trying to gather in your platform at Human First? And, and it, is that everything in one place for me or are there still other places I should, I should look? Yeah, Sam, do you want to take that one? And I think the answer is like, we're, we're one piece of the puzzle, right? We, we stand on the shoulders of giants and um, there's, there's a lot of different places. And, and sometimes they're even in surprising ones. Like, you know, I mean, many of us are on Twitter. People are sending out new information all the time in different areas. But yeah, Sam, do you want to talk a little bit about the work that we're doing with Atlas and then how that fits into the broader ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Craig, you asked, you know, what kind of data are you looking for? And I think the V3 framework that Andy mentioned, um, you know, it's, and it's similar to the draft guidance that the FDA just put out. Um, you, know, you really need to have verification that your device is measuring uh, what it says it is precisely and accurately. Uh, and then you need uh, validation. You need both analytical validation and clinical validation in your specific patient population. So that's the data that we really use to drive decisions. Um, not just is this a cool device, but it does this device work appropriately in the patient population in the medical condition I'm looking at studying. Um, sometimes I think about this as like, what, what's the wrong way to do this? Um, and, and so maybe just some watch outs that we've seen from our time. Um, you know, I think one watch out is, um, you know, try not to pick your technology first before you've picked your measure. Um, so if, if you just want to partner with a cool tech company and deploy a smartwatch to a thousand patients, um, before you even have an idea of what you want to measure or what you can measure. That's a, that's a big watch out for us, a big red flag. Um, because not every device is going to be appropriate for a specific patient population and, and what that device is measuring may not be meaningful to that patient, to the clinician, especially maybe not to a regulator. Um, the other watch out that we see is when, when sponsors wanna jump straight to a global phase three study with a new device. Um, and I think the, Maybe the good news, bad news here is, um, you know, there are a lot of, there is a process out there for verifying, validating a device, running usability studies with your patient population to make sure that, um, that your patients are comfortable, that they're wearing it, they know how to clean it and operate it um, and apply it. You know, those, that data is really important to collect before you really start to scale using that device globally in a pivotal trial. Um, and so I, that's not always the what our clients want to hear if, if they're already in a phase three and they really just want an Apple Watch out there. Um, but ultimately, that's, that's what we've seen be successful so far. Um, and the companies that are doing really interesting and really good work, generating really good evidence, 
using some connected sensors are taking that very methodical approach of starting with a proof of concept study, starting with maybe a benchtop verification, moving into analytical validation, and then a clinical validation study in their target patient population. So it sounds like the pain point you're trying to help me with as a study team operator is how am I going to navigate and all this different data that I should be looking at before I try and drop this device into my study. Uh, where are you going for all this data? Is this all publicly available? Or are you generating some organically? Yeah, so we have a, a team, our brilliant team of applied scientists, uh, and I, I see some on the in the room right now, um, that they are constantly ingesting data um, from peer review uh, journal articles from maybe preprint servers, conference abstracts. They also have data feeds for regulatory decisions. And so every day we are updating our database um, and really looking for that high quality evidence that specifies what, what is being measured by what sensor. Um, and that's really where we go first. We, we feel like we've built this really, um, I never want to say complete, but it's probably the most complete database out there of evidence uh, around digital measures and digital technology. Um, and so we, we really like to guide our decisions ba based on that, that data. Um, is this measurement valid in the patient population? I mean, that's something that's not unique to digital tools. That's true of any novel endpoint that you're, you're putting in a study and hoping to take to a regulator. You want to make sure that that, that endpoint is validated and, and clinically meaningful to your patient population. Um, so that's, that's where, how we use the data and uh, it's always growing. This is a, I would say a, a piece of the market that is growing at light speed. Um, so our applied sciences team is just a, you know, a team of rock stars reading all these papers, tagging them uh, and, and getting them into our database. We have the most complete uh, knowledge set. So, uh, Samantha, as we all know, uh, validation is a multi-layered word, right? And it takes a long time to really properly validate anything. So, you know, in drug development where, you know, many teams may really come to this too late to validate something new, how are we dealing with being able to actually develop new endpoints when, you know, the validation of that doesn't really fit into the accelerated timeline for actually developing the drug? I have one, um, I have an idea of, of how to talk about this for, for folks. So, um, and, and just to kind of give people a little bit more context. So I think often one of the questions that we get is somebody's like, what's the best heart rate monitor? Or like, what's the validated tool? And um, I always think that this, this question is kind of interesting because if somebody ever asked you like, what's the best drug or what's the best food? You'd be like, well, I'm, <laughs> I don't know. What do, you, what do you need that drug to do? And in what population do I need? You know, or what do I need from that food? Do I need more sugar? Do I need more protein? So one of the things that um, we're building, you know, it, when you're looking at complex things and you're trying to figure out how to evaluate them with drugs, we have labels, right? We know like what population they've been built on and, and developed on. We know um, uh, a number of different like side effects and ways that you might use that drug or not use that drug, whether it's on label or off label. Same with food. We have, you know, sometimes you need more sugar, sometimes you need more protein. So our team is building out labels effectively for this different type of connected tech so that you're able to make these sorts of decisions. And of course, one of those decisions is the validation question um, as you're going through. But there's other decisions that you might want to consider um, where somebody is thinking about how do I think about the security rights or how do I think about the um, data that are being used on this platform. Um, the usability and utility is really important where usability is um, utility is like, do, does it have the functions that I need? And then usability is how easy and pleasant are those functions to use? Um, you've probably had many things that are like, you know, very usable, but like don't have high utility. And a lot of times in healthcare, we have things that have high utility, but are very low usability. So there's kind of a big flex there. Um, for validation, validation always has to happen in a patient population. So when somebody asks, you know, what's the best heart rate monitor, that's gonna be really different depending on the different types of patient populations that we have. Um, Amir and Craig, I'm not sure if you wanna have, uh, I don't know what your preference is here, but we do have a couple of our teammates who have worked in applied sciences. You might, uh, I, don't, they, I don't know if they wanna like come up to the stage and talk a little bit about how they think about tagging and thinking about different types of um, 
validation processes. That's a great idea. What I'd like to do is um, we're going to open up uh, the room in general and let's see what questions are on the minds of folks in our audience. We'll keep this conversation going, certainly with you and Sam, and happy to grab some other um, some other colleagues from the team up here and hear the, some of their expertise and perspective here. But uh, this is a great opportunity since we're at the bottom of the hour just to reset things a bit and uh, to turn on the mic in the middle of the room and invite others up. If you're just joining us here at the bottom of the hour, welcome to the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. We gather here each Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, 9 to 10 Pacific. We cover a wide range of topics always related to the challenges and the opportunities of decentralized clinical trials and opening up access for research participation without the obligation of every visit taking place at a traditional research site. We cover different topics each week based on your input. So if there are topics on your mind that you'd love to see us cover in the coming weeks, reach out to myself and Amir and let us know. And if you'd like to co-host one, let us know about that too, because it's co-hosts like Andy and Sam that add the depth of expertise and color that make these conversations fabulous. Today's topic, digital measurements and decentralized trials, and we can go deep around the validation and qualification, the process around that, experiences, challenges people have faced, the data and the evidence that's required behind that to make it work. I see we've got a few friends that have joined us up here in the room. Andy, shall we uh, take a few questions and see where the conversation heads? Let's do it. Excellent. John Corky, welcome up to the stage. Take yourself off mute, introduce yourself, share your question or perspective. Hey, thanks, Craig and Amir, Andy and Samantha. Um, I'm so glad that I came on today because I didn't, I wasn't familiar with Sam's work. And Andy, I'm a member of Dime, have been for two years. I love the work you're doing there. Um, as you know, when we talk about using different devices and there's some devices that are better than others, you know, currently we're building a platform that uses the Apple Watch to collect information from people with dementia. And one of the most common uh, critiques that we get, we're funded by NIH. One of the most common critiques that we get from reviewers is the Apple Watch is expensive. The Apple Watch has to be charged every day. Mm -hmm. How would you, what would be your argument you know, to say, this is one of the reasons why we should use the Apple Watch. I mean, one of the things that we stated was just how popular that device is and for you know, when a lot of people are doing clinical trials, they're using devices that are perceived by both patients or people with dementia and their caregivers that they're stigmatizing. They don't, you know, they want to feel normal. And so that's one of the reasons we, we built on the Apple Watch right now. But, you know, what would be your justification, you know, to say, hey, it might have to be charged every 18 hours, but this is another great use of that device. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, these are just my opinions, but I, I think I'd probably need a little bit more context around those things. But I think it's always funny. So one, one meta thought that I have is that people always sound smarter when they're pessimistic. It's just true. Like the more that you're able to critique somebody, it sounds like intelligence and optimists. The way I think about it is like pessimists sound smart and optimists make money. <laughs> so yes, it's always easy to like find critiques in different things, but I think it's really about the alternative. Like if the alternative is that you're trying to measure somebody's sleep and you're either collecting it through a passively collected sensor or they have to fill in a survey. Um, I have no idea how I slept two weeks ago <laughs> or like yesterday. I don't, I don't even necessarily remember like what I ate or did in, in certain forms. And so I think it's really about the, the differences of it. Um, I don't know how important it is for the measurement to, um, you know, for it to be collected. Like when, when people do have to take off their watches, they do forget to put them back on. Um, I, I personally like things that last a little bit more than on the everyday basis. And so if, if I'm just needing to measure sleep, I do think probably personally like it and every day would be hard. But um, like I think for me, like my Fitbit probably lasts one to two weeks on stuff, but it just collects a lot fewer things and there's other tools out there not just these two um that said you know everybody is a normal person like nobody wants to wear uh some sort of watch thing that looks like a prison bracelet and until recently like a lot of them did and a lot of them you had to wear either like on your feet or um on your hands in different forms and so 
I think, um, you know, looking, wearing things that look good is, is not just something that's a luxury, I think is really important for adherence and for people to continue with participating. Um, I'm also getting alerts that my Wi-Fi might not be that good. Am I getting cut out? You're good. No, you're, yeah, you're yeah. good. Okay. Yeah. Very stable. Actually, Amir, I'm glad you're off mute because I just want to validate something since you're the uh, psychiatrist in the room. Pessimists sound smart. Optimists make money. Is there uh, can can you uh, support or refute Andy's uh, uh, position there? I like it. No, I'm going to give an opinion which is not based on my psychiatry or neurology training. Um, uh, Andy, I think what you said is so true, and I agree with you. I think well, I always joke that it, whether in pharma or NIH review committees, uh, I think as scientists we've actually been kind of trained how to kind of explain how something won't work in 10 different ways instead of thinking positively about what, how we could make it work. And I think that's a little bit difference between the hacker mindset and the scientific mindset in some ways. Uh, in that, you know, in pharma, you, you're definitely, if you went to a, a room trying to kind of push something new, there's the, clearly there'll be, you know, people telling you all the ways it won't work, right? But the other thing I was gonna to say to John in terms of trying to justify that, I would say, if I was doing it, I would ask patients, right? So I would actually bring data from patients where I've asked them, if you had the choice between the Apple Watch and these other three things, you know, what would you wear? So I would, I would really drive it by showing them patients from uh, patient data and their preferences. That's how I would do it. I think yeah, yeah, really, yeah. there's a real concern there that I think is, is valid. And, I, you know, I don't have a, an answer to it, but I do think that you know, as technologists, we maybe have a responsibility to think about how, you know, all these cool new sensors and all the, all these new data data methods may be creating an even bigger divide um, in in how people can access care, and and especially in Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative disease. Like we already have, um, you know, a pretty big problem with clinical trial recruitment, diversity, uh, and inclusion. Um, I do think. You know, it's it's a tough, it's a really really tough problem. But it it, I do think there's something there that we we all just sort of have a responsibility to be aware of. That um, the more we depend on Apple watches and and smartphones and and these devices to collect these measures, we may be leaving some some folks out. And I think it's important to have like a counterbalance of you know initiatives, making sure that that everybody does have access to this technology and and if, if access to the like high quality of care that they would get in a clinical trial. Samantha, I completely agree and I appreciate that comment. I One of the other critiques that we had, and, and I think it was completely ignorant, but they said that point blank, blacks won't use the Apple Watch, it's too expensive. And while there is a socioeconomic challenge, you know, there we know that a lot of blacks and Latinos, it doesn't matter, you know, they were just stereotyping, but we had reviewers make these comments and then we had to turn around and say, actually, there are so many studies that people of you know every race, uh, color, sex are using these devices. So, um, in we're starting on the Apple Watch, but we want to be able to put this platform just like you guys are doing, Andy. You know, on so many different devices, so we can help collect data from wide pop wider populations because we know that these individuals have been historically overlooked. Um, would love to connect with you, Samantha, offline. Thank you. Thanks so much, John. And thank you, Andy and Sam, for jumping in with those great perspectives. Jane, welcome, as always, back. One of the highlights for me to be able to see you this week uh, at a conference down in Florida. I hope your travels are going well. Reintroduce yourself if there's anyone that doesn't know you. Share your question or perspective today. Hello, good morning from the West Coast. It's not quite as warm as where Amiri is, but it is glorious. So I'm happily back home and had a great time. My brain is full and leaking. <laughs> but Andy and Samantha, you are filling it up again. So thank you very much. I have a question because I agree with you about the opportunity for novel measures to improve neuroscience and really making it possible to measure things that matter. I'm really curious too, how do you see that happening in oncology and what strides are we making there or where should I help you try to make them? This is Jane. I am 
unfortunately not an expert in oncology. So um, I don't know, maybe Craig or Amir, you have some thoughts there. Um, I think just in general, where I, I think there have been some really exciting momentum is in pre-collaborative, um, or sorry, pre-competitive collaboration, um, where you see a lot of different uh, pharma companies and trial sponsors getting together to really think creatively about a problem. Um, so I think that's that's just more generally where I'm seeing a lot of momentum, but I, I'm sorry that I can't speak more specifically to oncology. So I can, I can sort of jump in a little bit that what I would say is the reason I think digital is such a um, good initiative within neuroscience, obviously it's obvious, but I think of kind of neuroscience as not being just within sort of indications in neurology and psychiatry, but really behavioral health and any chronic condition including oncology, will have impact on those domains. So I think just measuring the, those kind of uh, neuroscience outcome measures has relevance way beyond just neuroscience indications. That's one, right? And I know we have people in the room and I see on stage there are more experts in oncology, so I'll let them do that. But I would just say, you know, just don't forget that really we should be doing a better job really trying to look at also those um, sort of behavioral aspects within other conditions. I think on a related note, then, you know, we, um, whether it's looking at quality of sleep, other, uh, other objective measures of quality of life seems directionally where at least I've seen some efforts headed as relates to, um, as relates to oncology, a few that maybe have leaned in around safety measures, uh, using more conventional physiologic measures. Um, Archana, I see you're here and I know you spend a lot of time in oncology as well. Uh, digital measurements in uh, in oncology. Yeah. Any trends you're seeing? Yeah, thank you. Um, good morning, everybody from um, the West Coast as well. Um, thank you for the op opportunity to chime in on this topic. Um, my name is Archana Sai, and I work. Um, I'm currently with Medable, and I head up their oncology solutions. Uh, I've spent over um, two decades in the oncology space, and I agree for the t question that Jane asked, and also. Um, their opportunity to use these wearable devices and sensors for real-time patient safety monitoring in oncology is, is really, really big. And um, I've been reviewing a lot of the regulatory guidance in this area that has also been put out both by FDA from their um, draft guidance of using DHT technologies, decentralized uh, technologies, um, and that came out in December, and also some of the ASCO guidelines that have come out on a similar topic. And there is encouragement to use these devices, con connected sensors for um, not only uh, real-time patient uh, monitoring, but also in the future, combining that with some of the artificial intelligence and, and machine learning using data analytics to drive uh, proactive, clinical decision-making um, for either, and that decision-making, um, you know, could range from as simple as uh, um, taking care of the adverse events of the patients or predicting the adverse events before they, they come on or before they land up in the ER, especially with a lot of these toxic drugs in oncology. Uh, that is very, very powerful. Um, to to some complex things where we are starting to predict the progression of the disease using some of these connected sensors. So I think there's a, it's still untapped, it's still early. Um, when we think about um, one of the biggest hurdles there becomes the integration of that data uh, on a platform, on a decentralized platform, for example, to be able to truly harvest the power of all the data that we are collecting through these connected sensors. Um, so oftentimes, uh, you know, I, you'll hear me say the potential and the opportunity is huge, but we need um, interoperability and we need uh, integration um, to catch up to that, to truly harvest that opportunity to benefit the cancer patients. Um, with that, I'll say that, you know, there's so much buzz going on. For example, I know uh, some of the companies they are cooperating and collaborating in a pre-competitive space um, to do exactly this. And um, 
and share some of the learnings. Um, some of them are low hanging fruits, but uh, we got to start and uh, they are being used in, in clinical trials as we speak. Um, you know, even, even things like cytokine release syndrome in cell therapies, connected sensors are being used today in actual clinical trials to um, monitor and predict the the crs and prevent them so I, I think there's a huge opportunity we have great some successes already and we need to build on that uh, I, I love that um that you're here for this and i i really love the crs example so for folks who are newer to this so crs is a um is a really toxic um progression that can happen and uh with CAR-T therapies. And so as more and more people are thinking about doing CAR-T, um, right now it's really tricky to be able to do that because you generally have to monitor somebody for long periods of time to, and people are fine and then they're not fine very, very quickly. And so one of the limits right now of CAR-T is that you end up having to do it in like these really fancy hospitals where you're tracking a lot of information. And so if, um, and this is why I've been really excited about a lot of people who are working um, to use digital sensors around CRS is that if you're able to either do this at home or maybe just like outside of the hospital a little bit, you could extend where people can get um, CAR-T therapy, which would be phenomenal. And so I think about this because um, when I had the opportunity to serve at the FDA, I co-authored a paper with Sean Cozen. And in that paper, um, we were looking at a couple different pieces of research. And one thing that I have seared in my brain that I can't leave is the number one reason why people don't participate in clinical trials. I'll give just a pause so you can think about it. What do you think is the number one reason? Socratic method. People don't want the placebo. And the number two reason is travel. So people are normal. They want, they have, you know, like you could be in a clinical trial, like you have other things that you could be doing today and you probably do. Maybe you're multitasking while um, you know, listening to this, which is awesome and good, you know? And so as you shift where these, um, these either therapies or the monitoring can happen, it fundamentally changes the whole course of the, the nature of the experience for the person. And so I really love a lot of the CRS ones because, you know, right now, I think sometimes people are like, okay, if you use digital tools, um, it's actually maybe not inclusive, they're more expensive, it's hard, maybe you have to use Apple products and like maybe it's only wealthier people that can do that. But actually in many ways, right now with things like the CAR-T example, it's only in wealthier cities or people who have high resourced areas and relatively a lot of these digital tools actually extend care and access in, in forms that other people can't get access to. And right now in this chat, um, which I love about with what Amira and Craig are doing is we're talking about clinical trials but broadly, remote monitoring um, can really extend the reach of a clinician in other forms. And so, Ashana, um, thank you for bringing up the CRS one. I love that example. Perfect. Um, we have about 12 minutes left, so I want to pick up a bit so that we can make sure we get to Artie, Upinder, and Rob. Artie, welcome. Introduce yourself. Share your question or perspective. Thank you, Craig, and good afternoon, everybody. Uh, hi from Houston, Texas. It's warm here. So um, my question, I think we touched a little bit on it. I mean, when John was here, but uh, Sam and Andy, thanks for your perspectives. My question is from the perspective of socioeconomic disparities, basically, and technology. I mean, I'm a technology fan, and I love using that. But and as, as amazing as that is, you know, there are real uh, gaps in there so sam you mentioned you your team collects data for recommendations and everything so do you guys also collect from with a specific focus on the socioeconomic disparities and you know age gender everything and also is that considered while choosing these digital measures you know while to which ones to use in a trial and do you guys second part is do you guys what do you think of using site perspectives? Maybe do you guys survey sites or what, what would be the option of surveying sites? Because they are the ones who work closely with, with these patients. So will it be a good option to maybe use that route? Your your uh, feedback on that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Such a really, really great question. Um, and I may like sort of turn the question back to you and, and ask you like what kind of data you think would be most helpful. I think 
where there have been studies published um, on on the usage of, of that sensor. That would be information we'd collect, but transparently I, I haven't seen you know too much out there. And I think I think your point is a really good one that um, you know maybe one of the criteria that a study sponsor can use when selecting a device is um, you know how how broadly um, you would you would be able to access it or, or if it would be exacerbating any um, any existing you know disparities. Um, but but I guess my question for you is like what what kind of data would you want to see to know whether the device you're picking is is sort of helping the pro- helping or hurting? Right. So I'm I'm kind of going on the lines of like the way we ask for study feasibility, right? The feedback from sites in a similar manner, would this be a feasible option? Um, like to, to kind of ask from the sites themselves, they know their communities much, much better. And so what if we ask them the feedback, like what kind of, you know, just giving them options and what would be suitable for their population, you know, in their community and what, or have they used it before? Was it, you know, useful and what kind of training would be needed? And just all those factors that go into the operations of actually using that to make it a success. So just, just my two cents, but you can correct me if I'm No, I love it. I think that's a really fantastic idea. And um, I would say it's not something that we, we currently collect at large, but I, I really love the suggestion. I think it's, um, it's important to get the, the site and the patient perspective on a device before you determine that you're going to put it in your program. Right. Just, I mean, I, I love taking proactive approaches. So I just uh, thought I was like, why not gather the information first? And so that we, you know, the probability of selecting measures that would actually suit uh, the the you know, target population, why not do that? So thanks for uh, your feedback. Can I jump in and ask a question? It's a clarifying question because Andy and Samantha, I read the guidance and did my best to interpret it, but I think there's language in the new FDA guidance around exactly what has just been asked. In other words, you need to seek input from all the stakeholders, but tell me what you thought of that language. Debating. This is recorded, right, Craig? <laughs> this is recorded, I, Andy. <laughs> um, I mean, I think uh, I'll say this lightly, and then maybe don't use the snippet. But I think the um, I think inherently guidances are a little bit tricky with the FDA. The more vague they are, obviously the FDA is the final arbiter of how to make that decision. So I I personally didn't find that to be very clear as to how that could be used, but I. That could also be a little bit by design. Um, I think that I think it's important to ask stakeholders. But what happens when you have a competing stakeholder, and how do you decide like who gets to make what decision? And like um, you know, in a clinical trial, we we do want to serve patients, but also it, it isn't necessarily clinical care. And so there are maybe certain hierarchies that um, are at play that can be a little bit more complex. RT, an interesting clarifying question, just so I understand, because I think it also depends on the type of research so that I, I know. Um, when you think about sensor selection, I think if it's different if you're going to do a BYOD study versus like bring your own device mm-hmm. study versus um, giving people devices, because depending on the cost or how those are, are being used, that could be different. And then one of the things to think about is the digital divide. So not everybody necessarily has constant and available streams of Internet. And mm-hmm. so if you have a device that has um, a lot, is using a lot of data, is that um, impacting the individual's data plan or are you also like providing uh, data access to be able to do those uploads? And depending on the type of study, sometimes, um, you know, it might be really tiny snips of data, so it's not that big of a deal, but some of them might be collecting a lot of data um, at each moment. So I think it depends like who's paying for both the product and the data flows that impacts it. And then of course there's things that if somebody just doesn't have reliable internet, um, it might not be their adherence or using it that that impacts the quality of how much your data are being collected during that research period. Yeah, thank you Andy for that perspective. I agree because, you know, I mean, it 
what digital or DCT, I mean, it's doing, it's digitizing a lot of our workflows and everything, but again, there is a real fear of digital divide. So I think just some proactive approach and kind of, you know, so that we can support that because we, again, it's, it's an, it's a great concept. We, so we want to support and see what, where the downfalls are and kind of just, you know, take a proactive approach. So thank you both Sam and Andy. Thank you, Craig. We are, um, thank you, Artie. We only have five minutes left and I want to make sure we get to our last three voices here. So we're going to do a little bit of a speed round. You pinder, come on off mute, introduce yourself and please share your perspective today. Okay, thanks. Um, hi, my name is Yupinder. I work for Bayer in clinical operations. Um, I'll try to be very quick. So firstly, Andy and Samantha, thank you for bringing the example of Deschens. I think that's a great example. Um, I think it's something that we should do more of. Um, trying to look at this in the ePro as well, because I think even in the ePro world, where we're still collecting uh, information which was originally designed to be collected on paper, and now that we're using electronic screens, we still haven't questioned why or is there a better ways of collecting the data but my question and and very quickly on this is a little bit naive as well is that in clinical trials we're starting to get into a, an area of where we're doing real world evidence real world data and in silico sort of control arms so you know less patients using data for more of the kind of control arms and my question is for the validation because i still see validation done as small kind of studies utilizing patients doing repeatability you know, reproducibility studies, but could you foresee where we're doing some of these validation studies with real world data or kind of like uh, in, in other ways? And this is your pin where I'm done, I'm done talking. Any taker there on so I think that real world data for and, validation? Oh, sorry, the Andy and Samantha, do you want to comment on that? I don't know that I have a, a very uh, <laughs> a, a very good response to that. Um, sorry, I'm that that's fine, and <laughs> and this might be a topic for follow on. You know what I might suggest, you Pinder, is we can drop that one even in LinkedIn and see if people need to give that a little more thought to be able to um, sure maybe that, add, that, a, that, add an answer in a discussion there. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, like I said it's a little bit naive, and and it, and the answer just could be that we just don't have enough data available to be able to do that. I mean, for trials, we have an abundance of data and we can do that, but maybe for validation, we just don't have that. But I'm just trying to look at ways that we can um, improve upon and kind of speed up some of the validation because to Andy's point, it, it is a bit of a time uh, taking part right now. For sure. but, uh, thank you. We are a down person to just I would definitely the last ask that question to oh. is Eric Perkalis. Um, and he's very active on Twitter. And so my DMs are open on Twitter. It's just Andrea Corvos. And so if you send me a message there, um, I can get you in touch or show you Eric's profile. He has a lot of thoughts on these things. Thank you. Andrea Corvos, you are clearly much more formal on Twitter. Um, let's, Archana, Rob, we only have two minutes left. Archie, can you just share if you had something quick and we can also get to Rob? I uh, know. I uh, thank you. I I just wanted to answer Jane's question, so I uh, humped off. Oh, thank you so much for being here for that. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate. It. It's always good to have you up here. Rob, take the last word here. Um, come off mute. Introduce yourself. Jump in. Hey, yeah, it's Rob Wilson. I was formerly running a business development for Actigraph for nine years, and then worked in the digital group with Health Mode. And I was just going to respond to Jane's comment on on oncology. Um, speaking of the Duke Mafia, but one of the early studies done in quality of life for oncology patients was done and published by, by Amy Abernathy when she was at Duke uh, with Actigraph devices. Um, and then also there's, uh, so there's two things with, with cancer oncology, of course, or any chronic disease, it usually affects activity or sleep. So we need to find the right measures, find something meaningful per patients. And um, so uh, that could be quality of life, but at, at Health Mode, we actually were working on performance status measures that could be done remotely for oncology patients so they wouldn't have the burden of coming into the, to the clinics. Um, so, you know, I think the, the, the talk has been great about verification and validation. Those are crucial, also starting with the patient and what those measures are. And I'm really hopeful that with sensors, with more validation and verification, we can really improve patients' lives uh, across a wide range of chronic disease. Thanks, Craig. Beautiful way to wrap things up there, Rob. Couldn't have summed it up better. 
this has been a fabulous conversation. I'm so glad we were able to benefit from having uh, two fabulous leaders in this field with Andy and Sam here. John, Jean, Artie, Yupinder, Archana, Rob, thank you for stepping forward with some questions and perspective. Coming up next week, come on back. We're going to be digging in around kids in decentralized trials, uh, and we'll have uh, a couple of fabulous voices joining us for that conversation. In the weeks ahead, data integration in decentralized, what are some of the opportunities and challenges there? And then on March 4th, we're going to pick up on a topic that was queued up here today, the Digital Health Technologies uh, Draft Guidance, and we'll have some friends from the Digital Medicine Society joining us there. Mark your calendars. Amir, any other closing perspective? Wishing everyone a great weekend, and thank you very much for helping us uh, this week. Fabulous. Thanks, everyone. Stay well.